Today, we are looking at God's Word from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let us pay attention to the word of the Lord. Not a single word of scripture is unnecessary or unimportant. Do you believe that, friends? Not not a single word. This book is unnecessary or unimportant. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So, so yes, passages like the one before us today describe people who lived thousands of years ago. Yes, there are significant cultural differences between the world they lived in and the world that we live in. Yes, this letter was written by a real man named Paul who struggled with weaknesses and relational challenges just like we do. And yet, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 that The Spirit superintended the words that human authors wrote, such that what they wrote was the very word of God, breathed out by God. So here's what that means, okay? God speaks to us inerrantly and infallibly and authoritatively through Colossians 4, 7 through 18, even though it feels like we are reading somebody else's mail. Okay? So don't say, I can't pronounce half these names, let's move on. Rather say, 
Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. We prayed that because these are the very words of life. Conclusions included. So Paul has spent the entire letter, speaking of conclusions, what's he concluding? The entire letter equipping, urging the Colossians to do what? To hold fast to Christ. To to not shift from the hope of the gospel. He, He wants to guard them and us from thinking like this. Enough already. I know that Jesus lived, died, rose from the grave to bring an end to sin and death and make me right with God. Could, could, we, could we move on to something more practical? Paul wants to guard us from that because there's nothing more practical than the gospel, right? No, nothing has the power to, to transform who you are and the way you do life like the good news of Christ crucified. Because when we grasp the reality that that Christ really is, as our series title so wonderfully said, above all, well then no part of life remains untouched. Who Jesus is, what what he's done, is doing, will do, it, it has serious implications for things like how do we relate to other churches? Or how do we pursue Christian ministry? Or how do we care for you as pastors along the way? And and Paul wraps up his letter by showing us what the Lord wants from us in each of those areas. We're going to linger on the first two and then I'll move more quickly through the last one. So so remember this as we dive in. Even though this section feels more personal in some ways. Reading somebody's mail. Paul hasn't stopped speaking for God. And he's no less inspired by the Spirit. In fact, he teaches us something really important. That in church relationships, in Christian ministry, in pastoral ministry, here's the main point. Holding fast to Christ means laboring for his sake, working for his sake, being about his business, engaged in his cause, in a way that's consistent with the character of his work. So let's begin with the implications of Jesus' work for our relationship with other churches. Okay, point number one, the the character of church relationships, verses seven through nine. If if you're not familiar with Tychicus, don't worry. You shouldn't feel shamed. I wasn't either. But I learned that, that he shows up quite a lot in the New Testament. He helped Paul deliver a financial collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He, he went at Paul's request to serve churches in Crete and Ephesus. And most likely, he delivered this entire letter of Colossians to the church in Colossae by hand because you couldn't email such things. So look in verse 7. What, what does Paul tell the Colossians to expect from Tychicus? Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. Verse 8, I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So so Paul wants the Colossians to know all the ways God has been on the move, not in Colossae, but in Rome, where Paul is. All the ways the gospel's been advancing, not, not just despite Paul's imprisonment, but through his imprisonment. Listen to Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me, Paul speaking, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's the kind of testimony Tychicus would have relayed to the Colossians. There's a, why, why does Paul want him to do that? Because there's a joy in Jesus that you will never experience, Christian, if all you're aware of and all you care about is what God is doing in your little life. You'll miss out on that. We're self-centered by nature, aren't we? It's our default setting. And not for the better. And yet God made us to derive joy, humility, strength from reports of what he's doing in other churches, other cities, other nations. Notice Paul doesn't tell the man to, to give a report to the Colossian missions committee. Because, you know, that's sort of their thing. No, he's reporting to the entire church because the entire church needs to hear. And we, we get to experience the same thing. Whenever we share on Sunday morning a, a missions update or watch a video testimony that features another Sovereign Grace church, or when we, we attend a missionary feedback session after the service, we've done that a lot of times, or or we hear from a visiting pastor who, who shares some of what God's doing in their church before he preaches from his pulpit. Those are not optional activities. Okay, that's God's way of, of pouring spiritual encouragement into our souls and strengthening our relationship with, with the broader body of Christ. Here's the, here's the main point. What, what is Paul illustrating here? Interdependent, relationally connected churches, not isolated congregations with little interest in denominational life, is the consistent pattern in the New Testament. So here's where I want to get personal with some of us, okay? We must not say, friends, as long as Kingsway's fine, I'm good. You know what I'm talking about? As, as long as Kingsway's fine, I don't really care how other churches, congregations, believers outside these walls are doing, I'm good. We must not say that. Why not? Because the Lord wants us to be deeply invested in the welfare of like-minded congregations. That's God's heart for us, that, to carry them on our heart and to regularly hear and, and rejoice in what Jesus is doing in their midst. Notice, Tychicus isn't some other guy from some other church that Paul wants the Colossians to just politely listen to and then scoot out and go home and watch football. <laughs> how, how does he describe him? He says, verse 7, he's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Do, do you hear the, the relational heart in all that language? And that's one reason I'm, I'm really grateful that, that we're part of a denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches, where every church in our denomination is organized into regions. Okay, geographically, we're, we're in the Mid-South region. That, that's not an affiliation, in case you were wondering. That Sovereign Grace isn't just another group that wants our money. Okay? Churches like Mercy Hill in Fredericksburg 
or Sovereign Grace in Roanoke or Living Faith in Franklin or, or Grace City in Wilmington or Crossway in Charlotte or Risen Open in Charleston. That's our spiritual family. What One of those churches, Franklin, planted this church, if you didn't know that. Two of those churches, we helped plant. Okay, we, we all just did a youth retreat together, had a wonderful time. And in case you didn't know this, the entire Fredericksburg Church is actually driving down 95 to join us on November 20 for our annual Thanksgiving celebration. We're going to pack out this room with several hundred people and give thanks to God and then eat to the glory of God together. And, and hardly a week goes by. And as some of you don't see this, but part of the privilege of preaching this passage, I get to share stories like this. Hardly a week goes by where I'm not on the phone or emailing some other pastor in our region to work through a, a mission opportunity or need of some kind. And I want to give you a, a really exciting example this morning and, and do a bit of Tychicus with you and let you know, in, in short, we'll talk more about this at an upcoming members meeting, what, what the Lord is doing in a place called Vintuk, Namibia. Um, right now, Josh and Lisa Kruger are in Vintuk, Namibia. They're, they're a full-time missionary couple we've been supporting for a number of years. Many of you know them. And, and in recent years, the Lord has built a conviction in Josh Jr.'s heart I praise God for this, that that the local church is the centerpiece of God's mission strategy and and that healthy local churches are built through gospel-centered expository preaching. That's right. And Josh and Lisa have have also had a growing sense that the Lord is calling Josh to full-time pastoral ministry. To see men and women in Namibia not just come to faith in Christ, but, but to be added to a local church in Vintuk. And right now, this is incredible, there's, there's a group of some 40 to 50 folks that are gathering around with Josh and Lisa and functionally looking to him as their pastor. He's ended up preaching regularly on Sunday mornings. He actually, they're ahead of us by six hours, so he already preached this morning. And they're leading a community group in their home during the week. What does that sound like God's turning Josh Jr. into? <laughs> and, and when I visited Josh and Lisa in April, spent a week with them, we, we talked for hours about this growing desire they have to, to plant a Sovereign Grace Church in Vintook. And, and since then, we've been talking a lot about that possibility with, with our local missions committee, other pastors in our region, even our global missions director, Dave Taylor, at the denominational level. And without exception, all of us believe this is something the Lord is doing. If you could hear from Josh and Lisa, the, the relational favor God has given them among different ethnic groups in their, their city is just incredible. So here's what we're working on. We're working on bringing their family to Midlothian in January for a one-year church planting residency with the hope that in 2024, we could send them out to plant a church in Vintuk with those folks who are already waiting for them to do so. Just so encouraging to, to hear 
how the Lord's on the move like that. And, and that's the same sort of thing the Colossians would have experienced when they welcomed Tychicus. But I want you to notice he didn't come alone. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul sent Onesimus with him. Together, he says, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, now who is Onesimus? Besides a difficult name that's hard to spell and say. Well, Onesimus was a runaway bondservant who had defrauded a member of the church in Colossae named Philemon and left the place. He eventually, Onesimus, winds up in Rome. He meets Paul and becomes a Christian. (laughs) It's added to the church in Rome. And if you want to know more, because this is a whole other sermon, (laughs) just go and read the book of Philemon later tonight. Okay, which, which Paul wrote to, to help Onesimus come back to Colossae and pursue reconciliation with his former master. So, suffice it to say here, though, what Onesimus did to Philemon was not right. But I want you to notice, Kingsway, Paul doesn't want the Colossians to view Onesimus for the sins or mistakes he's committed in the past. Look at verse 9. He wants them to what? Welcome him for who he is in Christ, who is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. And, and he gives him the dignity, think about this, of reporting to the Colossians all that the Lord is doing in Rome. Do you think that guy had a checkered history? Do you think when he walked in with Tychicus to the assembled church in Colossae, it could have been a little uncomfortable in the room? Yeah. And yet Paul sent him. Faithful, beloved brother. What what, what do we make of that? Here's what I make of it. Relationships between churches will always come with challenges. (laughs) Right? I mean, they, they were difficult in the first century. They're, they're still difficult today. But, but here's the point. Here's what we learned from Paul's example. When, when regional church relationships or, or denominational life is messy and we're tempted to just duck out, we shouldn't. <laughs> what do we do? We respond with mercy and justice to whatever issue arises, just like Paul did, writing the letter to Philemon, and we keep our eyes focused not on what people are doing or not doing, but on what God is doing and continues to do, even through broken vessels. In other words, holding fast to Christ means laboring for Jesus' sake in in a way that's consistent with the character of his work. So how is Jesus working? Well, he's on the move in other churches, no less than her own, And he's accomplishing his perfect work through weak vessels. May may we rejoice and relate with other churches accordingly, especially in our region. It's the character of church relationships. Second, consider the character of Christian ministry, verses 10 through 14. You've probably caught it when Bob was reading, but, but this section contains a whole list of greetings, just one greeting after another. 
from various members of the church in Rome to the church in Colossae. And, and the fact that Paul saw fit to include greetings in the inspired and errant word of God reminds us of what? The point I was making earlier about God's heart for real relationship between churches. But on another level, I think what Paul discloses here about these different people it illustrates something of, of the character of Christian ministry. I want to just think with you about that for a moment. And in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says to the Ephesians, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you know, that, that verse isn't just true of the Ephesians, right? That, that's true of every Christian. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can wake up every day of your life and know something. What's that? That today, Jesus has prepared good works for you that you might walk in them. Christianity means more than salvation on the final day. It means new life today. A life devoted to loving and, and serving the Lord. It, it means using your time, your abilities, your resources to, to make much of the Savior who died for you all throughout the week. And I think it's, it's really easy to talk like that in this setting. Oh yeah, it's really important to serve Jesus, live for Jesus. Okay, who's going to vote that down, right? Doing the good works the Spirit empowers us to do. But, but what does that actually look like? Think about that. What, what does Christian ministry, all the heart of the week, what does it require? Not, not just for pastors, but for all of us. For, from the newest believer to the most seasoned saint. Well, I think Paul highlights several characteristics of Christian ministry in this section. First, that it's always costly. It's costly. There, there's some debate about whether the, the word he uses to describe Aristarchus, verse 10, as my fellow prisoner, re- refers to a literal imprisonment with Rome, in Rome with Paul, or, or a symbolic captivity to God's priorities and purposes. But, but I would argue either way, the point remains, Christian ministry is costly. For, for some, it might be a physical cost. So Aristarchus, if you didn't know, was attacked by a mob, Acts 19, on account of his faith, and most likely, he was shipwrecked with Paul on the island of Malta. That's rather physical. Uh, for, for others, the cost might be relational. So you may have to end a close friendship or, or stop hanging out with people who, who sabotage your love for Jesus or, or dull your sensitivity to the things of God or, or maybe the cost is financial. And I prayed about this earlier, but, but from global standards, every one of us in this room is fantastically wealthy. Off the chain, wealthy. And so we can expect that if we're going to follow Jesus, he will ask us to give away much of what he has entrusted to us. There's a cost to following him. You don't get to keep it all. (laughs) I mean, bottom line, we we could go on, other examples, right? Bottom line, if, if you like having a comfortable life where you're never too busy, working too hard, or or forced to do anything outside your comfort zone, then you can know this, Christian. The Lord will set good works before you 
that are perfectly designed to kill your idol of ease. You can bet your 401k on that. (laughs) And you should be suspicious. If I could be so bold as to say this, you you should be suspicious if whenever you have an opportunity to to do a work of ministry that, that feels costly or painful, where a brother, sister in Christ, or a pastor, or a friend, or family member, you know, they invite you to do something, suggest you do something, and that's painful. That would be costly. That would put me outside my comfort zone. You should be suspicious if your default response every time is, God must not be calling me to that. As if the litmus test for God's call, Ephesians 2, 10, good works, is easy. <laughs> Wait, where do we get that? I'll say it this way. To follow a suffering Savior is to follow him in a life of sacrifice. Yes. If your Christian life doesn't feel like a sacrifice, you should question, am I actually following Jesus? Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. Christian ministry is costly. Second, Christian ministry is restorative. Restorative. What do I mean by that? Well, I love how Paul relays greetings from Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Like, okay, Williams, why are you so psyched about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas? Well, if you didn't know, Paul had a significant conflict with a fellow missionary named Barnabas in Acts 15 concerning a guy named Mark. Paul and Barnabas had gone together on this first missionary journey all around the known world, and they brought Mark, and Mark bailed before they were done. And Paul didn't like that. And he didn't want to bring him for round two. And Barnabas did. And a sharp disagreement broke out, and Paul and Barnabas ultimately parted company. All of that happened some 12 to 14 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. So, clearly, at some intervening point, Paul and Mark were reconciled. And actually, in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you. Check this out. For he is very useful to me in ministry. So, exactly how Mark grew in maturity, how he was restored to partnership with Paul, we don't know. I'm not going to spend time guessing. But don't miss the underlying principle, okay? Hear this, Kingsway. In the work of Christian ministry, we, we must never permanently dismiss or mentally sideline someone from ever being used by God in the future because of past unfaithfulness. Do you know what that's called? The promise of the gospel. Okay? But, but we, can, we can make that mistake so quickly. You know, we, we size people up. I won't ask you to raise your hands. Okay? We, we, we issue 
a functional internal verdict over their life. We conveniently leave them in the, the useful or not so useful discipleship boxes for the rest of their years. That, that should not be, brothers and sisters. When, when a Christian stumbles, is discipline a loving necessity? Okay, we are, we are far too hesitant on that. We're going to go to Hebrews 10 now. When a Christian stumbles, is, is discipline a loving necessity? Yes, always, for all of us, right? When a leader falls, are public consequences appropriate? Yes. Yet how often we, we viciously eat our own. Do you know what I'm talking about? We we adore our spiritual heroes and our favorite internet pastor until the moment they prove to be a sinner just like us. And then we despise them. Kingsway, we serve a God who redeems. God who redeems. Okay, a God, a God who, who delights to restore. In the kingdom of God, your future is not defined by your past. Praise be to God. I mean, isn't that what Jeff's testimony just screams, shouts? In the kingdom of God, your future isn't defined by your past. It's secured by the faithfulness of God. Through sharp disagreements, God keeps working. Through public scandal, God keeps working. Through painful departures, God keeps working. Okay, what, what, what a testimony to the redemptive power of God for Paul to say, Mark greets you. Third, Christian ministry is communal. It's costly, it's restorative, it's communal, okay, or, or collective, or Slash, slash, it's a team sport, okay? Maybe a better metaphor. Some of you younger guys playing, girls playing sports right now in the fall. It's a team sport where success depends on laboring in community. Look at verse 11. These Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice are the only men of the circumcision, the only Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Here's what I want you to notice. If Paul needed fellow workers, hey, this is the support and comfort of working in community. Do you think we do? Yes. Okay, the, the Lord, he doesn't want us to go at it alone. Ever. Ever. Our, our, our roles and responsibilities in the kingdom of God may be different. But we're able and called to strengthen each other in the Lord nonetheless. In other words, you don't have to be a pastor to encourage me in the work God has called me to do. And I don't have to be an electrician to encourage you in the work God has called you to do, okay? And if you try to do whatever good work the Lord has called you to do, John Wayne style, you will epically fail, friend. Why? Because God created you for community. He, he saved us 
for community. That the biblical mark of spiritual maturity, listen, is not an I don't like people, feelings be damned, a hundred acres and a gun is all I need sort of attitude. Paul is humbly transparent about his need for encouragement and comfort from fellow members, fellow believers, fellow workers, and he, and he honors them accordingly. He needs that. And, and I want to specifically speak here to, to those of you who, right now, if you're honest, you feel isolated in the work of Christian ministry. Not, not because you've run away from community or you're trying to go at it alone, but because over the years, people keep moving or friends keep leaving or, or saints that you can really lean on just feel incredibly hard to find. What do we do then? Does it mean something's wrong with you? Or is the whole coworker thing this utopian mirage? Allow, verse 11, to wisely shape your expectations. These are the only men among the circumcision. Really, Paul? For real? Countless sermons, untold miracles, with all your learning and skill, are you really telling me that after all these years of like the best pastor, the best missionary, I mean, you wrote half the Bible, you're the man. Only three Jews are working with you. Yes. And all three of them have been a comfort to me. Friends, serving Jesus has always meant following him outside the camp. You will experience loneliness. You will experience relational isolation. So don't be surprised. Don't despair when, when human faces are few in number. And if they are, remember this. Abundant grace. Hypothetically, this might be personal. Abundant grace flows through the smallest of human channels. What do, what do I mean by that? Don't underestimate the encouragement and comfort the Lord will bring you through a single coworker in the faith. Okay? They don't have to be your type. They don't have to click with your personality. They, they may even strike you as terribly socially awkward. <laughs> and yet God, our gracious God, will be faithful to comfort and strengthen you through one. Don't forget that. Christian ministry is communal. Finally, Christian ministry is marked by persistent prayer. 
persistent prayer. You know, we honor people that move to Bangladesh or other crazy places and take the gospel to another land. We feature on the news people who run food pantries for thousands or leave a lucrative career for the challenge of full-time pastoring. We love to write books about those kinds of people. I would argue we would do far better in some cases, many cases, to, to honor the physically homebound widow who bows her head before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ every morning, asking the Lord Jesus to strengthen and protect his church. I would argue for that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, then you need to, in our church membership directory, look up the phone number of a woman named Maritha Hoffman. Or you need to join Mike and Will Hagen in praying for our Sunday gathering and our pre-service prayer meetings. Or you need to come back here tonight, plug, plug, at 6.30 in the seminar room to intercede for our congregation. Why, why do I say that? Because, because prayer is an act of, a holy act of spiritual war. It, it's how we contend against the, the spiritual forces of evil around us and, and within us. And it's a difficult struggle where distractions abound. Pl- plenty of other good works feel a whole lot easier than struggling in prayer. And yet nothing compares to the power of calling on the God who saves. Look at verse 12. Epaphras. What's he doing? Always struggling on your behalf, Colossians, in his prayers that you may stand mature, fully assured in, in all the will of God. And then Paul commends him in verse 13. I bear him witness, he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Here's the application question. Wait, when was the last time, be honest, that you specifically and earnestly and faithfully prayed for our church? For, for something more than your own personal problems and challenges. I, I don't ask that or say that to guilt anyone or manipulate anyone. I say that because I've noticed how much easier it is to spend time physically doing things for the church or mentally evaluating the church than it is to quietly sit before God and struggle in prayer on behalf of the church. The chief work of Christian ministry is the work of prayer period. And that's why we pray for our church, for members, other churches, other countries on Sunday morning. Prayer reminds us that our hope for the success of Christian ministry resides in the Lord who always keeps his promises, not in people who may prove unfaithful tomorrow. And I say that because of verse 14. Look there. Paul relays greetings from Demas. Well, you know, a A few years later in 2 Timothy 4.10, he grieves the way Demas deserted him. He fell in love with his present world. Human hopes will fail you, friend. You can bet on that. God will not. God will not. What's the point? That that holding fast to Christ means 
laboring for Jesus' sake in a way that's consistent with the character of Jesus' work. So what do we know about Jesus' work? He's a faithful God. So what does Christian ministry consist of? Praying. Lord, do what you have promised you would do. Let me close with a few brief comments about the nature of pastoral ministry. And I linger here briefly as we close, but both to exhort our present elders, myself included, and to equip you to know what to look for and expect, pray for, from future elders. So three marks briefly. First, pastoral ministry is relational. Always relational. Okay, that that doesn't mean every pastor will be your best friend. Or every pastor will spend equal time with every member. Okay, it does mean cold professionalism has no place in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Because genuine pastoral ministry always always proceeds from a, a heart of affectionate responsibility for the flock of God. Notice in verse 15 how Paul does more than just relay other people's greetings. He communicates his own. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, a woman, and the church in her house. Notice how both men and women are the object of Paul's pastoral care. Secondly, pastoral ministry is word-centered. Word-centered. Think about this. Paul could have rightfully claimed, and in some cases he did, appropriately so, a, a unique authority as an apostolic eyewitness of the risen Christ. But he doesn't build the Colossians into his personal brand or even his apostolic authority. He builds them into the scriptures. Look at verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. You, you realize that's what faithful pastors do. They, they use their authority, public and private, to, to build people, build the church into the written word of God. That's our job. Now, of course, not, not everything Paul said or wrote in his life was inspired or part of the canon of Scripture. So we might wish we could have a copy of this letter to the Laodiceans, but we need not fear that we're missing part of God's word or that a hundred years from now, some archeological discovery will let us know that though the Lord has been seeking to speak to us all this time, human weakness and the inability to know that it was actually in that jar the whole time, is somehow standing between us and hearing from God. Why why do we need to not be afraid of that? Well, back to the faithfulness of God. Okay? The assurance that we're not missing something he intends to communicate ultimately rests on his character, not ours. Jeremiah 1.12, the Lord says, I am watching over my word to perform it. Preservation, transmission, canonization included. Or 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has, perfect tense, granted to us all things. Right now, Christian, that pertain to life and godliness, including the scripture we hold in our hands. Finally, pastoral ministry majors on equipping people. 
It's relational, word-centered, majors on equipping. Look at verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. Okay, to put it bluntly, our job as elders is not to curate and run a bunch of programs for Christians to consume. (laughs) Praise be to God, okay? Our holy responsibility is what? To equip and strengthen you for the Ephesians 2.10 works of ministry God has called you to do. It's the church's job, your job, to do the work of ministry. It's my job to equip you and prepare you for that work. So a faithful pastor doesn't run around providing tacit endorsements of various members' personal ministries by by making them all great big church-wide things or putting them all in the church calendar. Okay, Rather, through our teaching, through our intercession, through our example, through our personal encouragement, what do we do? We urge you toward faithfulness in what God has called you to do. That's the call. So when we evaluate elders past, present, and future, we we shouldn't ask, can they administer eight incredible programs with their eyes closed? What should we ask? Is this a man who cares deeply for God's people? Is this a man we can trust to explain and apply God's word? And is this a man who joyfully and skillfully equips others for the work of ministry? That's what we ask. For for pastors, holding fast to Christ means laboring for Jesus' sake in a way that's consistent with the character of his work. So whether it's the character of church relationships, the character of Christian ministry, the character of, of pastoral ministry, we don't just get to do our thing or whatever we feel like doing or whatever comes naturally. No, we have to stop and say, Lord, in all of these areas, how can we labor for your sake? in a way that's consistent with your work. And if some of the things I've talked about this morning strike you as a little bit hard or not easy to do, or as we conclude this whole series in Colossians, you're thinking, man, oh man, I just don't know. Will I really be able to hold fast to Christ? And all that means in so many areas of life. Well, I want to leave you with Paul's final words in verse 18. He simply says, Colossians, grace be with you. No better conclusion, frankly. Why not? Because Paul knew that the same grace, that the same unmerited divine favor that broke into his life was the same grace that would sustain the Colossians and holding fast to Christ. And it's the same grace that will sustain us, King's way. The same grace. So let's go to the Lord and ask him for that grace.